begin by saying good morning and welcome to those of you joining us by video right now if you're in our contemporary service or join us online. I'm glad you're there. And we all just saw the same video together sharing uh, a little teaser, a little look forward to a series that we're going to share together, a journey that will begin on our fall kickoff Sunday on September 10th. It's a series about the Gospel of Luke, a biography of Jesus that's been shared by Christians since the earliest times. And it's a journey we're going to share in together for this whole coming year, something that our staff and our pastors have been working on for months already, since before the summer even started. And I'm really looking forward to it as an opportunity I think we all have to grow in hope and to grow in life transformation in Jesus Christ. But before that series starts, we've got two weeks left to learn some important stuff from the end of what, we're, what we've been doing all summer long in a series called Ancestry.Church. We're learning the oldest stories of our people, of the people of God. And we're going to be reading from the book of Genesis this morning. If you have a Bible with you, you want to get that handy right now, open, some, open your Bible apps. If you'd like to borrow a Bible in both of our venues, our ushers are going to come up the aisles right now with Bibles. You can take one of those from the usher and then just put it on the, back, on the shelf in the back of the venue after the worship service today. We're going to begin in a few minutes by reviewing that reading we all heard from Genesis 37. So if we want to open up, you can put that on the seat next to you if nobody's sitting there. It's on page 55 of your Quest Bibles if you want to kind of get ahead of me a little bit. While the Bibles are being distributed, I thought I'd share with you kind of how I've been thinking about this series over the summer, our learning journey through the book of Genesis, Ancestry.Church. Here, in, in one line, kind of how I've been thinking about this, is like training wheels for understanding what God is up to, right? Like we can, we wonder what's God up to in our lives, and it can be hard to discern. We've got questions, what's God doing here? We can read these ancient stories and see this is the character of our God. This is the kind of thing that God has done among our people many generations ago. And it kind of helps us develop eyes to see and minds to understand this is the kind of God we worship and this is the sort of thing that God is up to among his people. I'm going to ask you today two times, once now and once at the end of the message, to think. I hope you think throughout the whole thing, but to really think and reflect about your own life, your own experience. And let me just, here's the first one. Can you think about a time in your life or a series of events where you wondered, how, what, what was God going to do with that? And maybe even in an innocent way, like looking back at the what-if moments, this fork in the road, that fork in the road got you to where you are now, and you go, there's no way I could have guessed this moment from that moment. Right? I, I bet a lot of us have those. One that I think of is the conversation I had 20 years ago or so, pretty close to that, actually, when I talked to a pastor back in Cleveland, Ohio, and I was planning to go to seminary, and it was this conversation I hadn't expected to have, and I had other plans, and we had a conversation where he convinced me that I should go to the seminary up in the frozen tundra called Minnesota, and I should go train for the ministry up there. And so on his advice, I planned a senior year of college spring break trip to St. Paul, Minnesota, like all my friends were doing, and I went up to St. Paul and visited Luther Seminary here, and I think about the things that would be different in my life if that conversation and that decision that I wasn't expecting had never happened. I never would have moved to this wonderful state. I never, pro I don't think I would have had occasion to meet my lovely wife, Amy. I don't think I would have the children that I have. I don't think I would have had the relationships that wound up connecting me to Pastor Steve Mahan, our former senior pastor that wound up leading to me being here. And I wouldn't know any of you and you would be lucky enough not to know me and the, the whole thing would be different. And I think, how could I ever have foreseen this from then, right? I imagine you've got 100 examples like that. We wonder, what's God doing in our story? How's God going to take this and work it out 
for something else. And those are like the innocent, interesting ones to think about. There are other ones that are a lot harder where you find yourself at places in life and you go, seriously, what? What's God going to do with this? This does not look like this is any good. You know? The obvious ones and some of the really painful ones are physical suffering, disease, sickness, that kind of stuff. And you go, what's this for? Like, is this kind of, is God going to redeem this somehow? Does God fold this back into his plan somehow? We've been learning over the course of this series that all the suffering and evil that happens in the world, it's not necessarily God didn't plan that for your life. But how's God going to work that into his plan? How's God going to accomplish his purposes through that? It can happen in our relationships. I mean, some of you may have circumstances where you've experienced some real relational pain some rejection, some abandonment, some betrayal by people you love, by people you thought loved you, family members, spouses even, rocked your world. And you go, what is God going to do with that? If there is a God, we feel sometimes in moments like that, what is God going to do with that? And most of us have that stuff somewhere in our stories. Some of you, I know, have that. That's the story you're in right now. That's the chapter that you're living in. In some cases, I, we've talked about it, and I know you're going through it. And in a church family our size, odds are a lot of us are going through moments like that. And we ask those questions, what's God going to do with this? And this morning, we have the opportunity to put the training wheels on, to put the glasses on, and look at the story, the twisty, turny, unpredictable, up and down, painful, joyful story of a guy whose name was Joseph who lived about 4,000 years ago. If, you're, if, you're a, if you are new to Bible reading, you may not know that this Joseph is not the same Joseph as the one who's kind of famous as the earthly father of Jesus, who lived about 2,000 years ago. This guy's about twice as long ago, and he was made famous by a Broadway musical called Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Maybe you've heard of that. I want to read a story with you this morning. So if you don't have your Bible open yet, uh, turn to Genesis chapter 37 with me. We're going to review, we're going to begin by reviewing the reading we all heard already and then find a few more chapters in the story. This is page 55 of your Quest Bible if you're using this Bible that we have here in our worship venues. Genesis 37, I'm actually just going to go ahead and start in verse 2 here. This is the account of Jacob's family line. We've been learning about Jacob the last couple of weeks, very important figure in biblical history, had a whole bunch of kids. Joseph is one of them. It says in verse 2, Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. That should feel a little bit grating, right? Wives in the plural at the same time, right? Uh, this happens a lot in biblical history. Much to our surprise, it never ends well, right? Okay, so this is already some tough family dynamics. And Joseph brought their father a bad report about them. When the younger brother tattles on the older brothers, that happens in life sometimes, right? And it's not always conducive to healthy family relationships. Now Israel, that's Jacob's other name. God renamed Jacob Israel. I think we learned about that just last week. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Uh-oh. Because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. Ornate, it says in this translation. Some of you may have heard before, if you've heard this story before, a coat of many colors, or some translations say a long sleeve coat. The truth is, this is the only place in ancient Hebrew literature where that word is used, and no one knows for sure what it means. It's a fancy coat of some kind. It's a special gift that Jacob gave his father, jo Jacob gave his son Joseph, that he didn't give to any of the other kids. One kid getting the gifts, the others aren't getting. 
When his brothers, verse 4, saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. These are some pretty toxic family relationships. Some of us live or have lived or continue to live in some toxic family relationships. We might have that in common with these people who were part of our family, part of the family of God thousands of years ago. And you might be wondering when you read the story, maybe you've wondered about that in your own life. What's God going to do with that? How's God going to put that back into his plan? Now, it keeps on going here for a few verses. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were all binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and it stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Now, it's not going to ever go well, but you think about that in the context. It's already volatile. It's already rife with the sibling rivalry and the parental favoritism and the hatred and the toxic relationships. This is a noxious brew of relationships in their family. How's God going to work in a family like that? Well, to speed ahead for a few minutes here, Joseph's brothers come up with a great idea to kill him. And then some of the slightly less hot-headed brothers say, whoa, hold on, that's not a good idea. Let's throw him in this pit and talk about what we should do to him. So they throw him in a pit. They talk about what to do to him. Some brothers want to kill him. Some of the really merciful ones say, you know what, if we kill him, we don't get anything for him. How about if we sell them into slavery and make a little profit? And a band of nomads is coming by, and they sell them to this band of slave traders who take him to Egypt. And to tell their father what happened to the brother who never came home, they took this fancy coat, the symbol of what was wrong in their family, and they dipped it in goat's blood, which I suppose looks a lot like human blood, right, especially after it dries on the coat, and they take it back home, and they say to their father, oh, this is a tragedy. Look what happened to our brother Joseph while he was out in the field. He must have been devoured by wild animals, and we brought this home to you. Wow, (laughs) right? Joseph is sent off to slavery. The father is lied to. The brothers are murderous, but then not actually murderers. Instead, they're just doing this to Joseph and the family and the grief. What's God going to do with that? Well, Joseph winds up in Egypt, right? And as a slave, he is sold into the household. He becomes a house slave in the household of a guy whose name was Potiphar. We'll call him Mr. Potiphar today. And he is like the chief of staff eventually, in Mr. Potiphar's house. He's really reliable. He does really good work. The Bible says that God was with him. God saw him there and prospered his work. And Joseph rose to positions of great responsibility in the house, being left untended by his boss, Mr. Potiphar. And sometimes that meant that he was left alone in the house with Mrs. Potiphar, who had some ideas for the kind of relationship that they should have and tried to talk him into that. I want to tell you, I'm trying to keep this story. This, if you read this whole story, it is the soap opera in the Bible in Genesis 39. I'm going to skip a couple parts there. But let me read you Joseph's answer in Genesis 39, verses 8 and 9. This is just a couple pages later on 59 in your Quest Bibles. But Joseph, but he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God, whom he perceives has given him this position of responsibility? 
Now, that line of argument was not persuasive to Mrs. Potiphar. And one time it happens that he's in the house and there's no other slaves in the house, there's nobody else, it's just her. And she catches a hold of his cloak in her efforts to persuade him into a compromising situation. And Joseph flees the house and leaves his cloak behind and she screams. And she says to the uh, people come running. And she says, this Hebrew, that's interesting, he is another race. He is a, a, a racial minority house slave in the home of the housemaster and housemistress, Mr. and Mrs. Potiphar. And Mrs. Potiphar lodges an accusation against him and says, he has been brought here. He has come to make sport of us. But fortunately, I screamed. And when I screamed, he knew you all were going to come and catch him. And so then he fled. Now, that's not the truth, of course, right? But let me just ask you to put on your sort of common sense, life experience, school of hard knocks thinking caps. When the racial minority slave in the house is being accused by the beloved mistress of the house, and it's her word against his word among the Egyptians, how many times out of 10 are they going to believe him? Not a lot. And so he's carried off to prison. Maybe he's fortunate he didn't get killed for this. Now he's in prison because no good deed goes unpunished. And what's God going to do there? Well, he meets a couple people who are in prison, who are put there by the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, a butler to the Pharaoh and a baker for the Pharaoh. They both have dreams, and they come to Joseph and ask Joseph for an interpretation. And Joseph says, my God can give you the answer. He interprets the dreams. To make a long story short, one of those, they both come true, and one of them is not good news, and one of them is, and the one that is good news, the guy survives the imprisonment, and he goes back to work for Pharaoh. And when he leaves the prison, he says to Joseph, I will not forget you. You gave me this good interpretation, and my life has turned out well, and I will remember you. And then he returned to his job, and he returned to power, and he did not remember Joseph, and he forgot him. Until one day, Pharaoh has a dream. The Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has a dream that he does not understand, and he asks his court magicians, what does this mean? And none of them can tell, them, can tell him. And, the, and the, the butler, the cupbearer, who was in prison with Joseph and came back to power, who said, I'll never forget you and I will remember you, finally remembers him. He goes, oh, wait, wait, Pharaoh, I know a guy. He could help you. Pharaoh says, go get the guy. So Joseph comes out. Let me read you what happens in that interaction. You can turn with me, please, to Genesis chapter 41 page 61 of your Quest Bibles. We're going to read starting in verse 15. In Genesis 41, verse 15, on page 61, uh, we get this episode. But Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it, but I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I can't do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, in my dream, I was standing on the bank of the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I've never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first. But even after they ate them, no one could tell they'd done so. They just looked as ugly as before. And then I woke up. If I was Joseph, I'd be like, hmm, uh, tell me another dream while I think about that. <laughs> and so he does. <laughs> In my dream, I saw seven heads of grain, full and good, growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads sprouted, withered and thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. I told this to the magicians, but none of them could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. 
God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. And Joseph proposes a wise plan. He says, Pharaoh, you know what you ought to do. During these seven years that are coming, we're going to be living high. We're going to have a lot. They're going to be seven rich years. And it's going to feel like we should feast and party and live high. But what we got to do is save up in the rich times and save, so saving against the lean times, getting ready for that. And Pharaoh goes, good idea. That's smart. You're in charge. And he makes Joseph kind of vice president or chief of staff for the whole country. And Joseph gets in charge of a grain storage plan, and he stores up all this grain. And come the lean years... They wind up selling grain to the Egyptians who can't grow grain, who are going to starve to death, and to other nations who come from around, and also even to Joseph's own family. But we'll hear about the dynamics of that episode next week. But even that little fledgling nation comes to Egypt to buy food because God put Joseph in Egypt or worked with Joseph in Egypt and did something with that plan. Now, there's more to Joseph's story, but we're far enough now to stop and reflect on what's God going to do with these episodes. How does God fold stuff back into his plan? But to see that the most clearly, let me pull back for a second and review something we've been returning to over and over again throughout this summer series on the book of Genesis. So one more Bible passage I'd like you to read with me. If you have a Bible, this is, this is arguably the most important passage in Genesis. It's the foundation for all the stories we've been reading. Turn back to Genesis chapter 12 with me. This is on page 18 of your Quest Bibles. We're going back to the story. We're going to read Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. We are going back to the story of Abraham, I'm sorry, of Joseph's great-grandfather and great-grandmother, Abraham and Sarah. And this whole thing began when God reached out to Abram and Sarah and called them and made a covenant, made a promise with them. This is what God said. Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, from your people, your father's household, to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Okay, just to summarize that passage, God's promise to and covenant with Abram includes three things, land, family, and calling. Right? I'm going to give you land, to the land I will show you, I'm going to make of you a great nation, many descendants, and you will be a blessing through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed, land, family, blessing. In Genesis, after that chapter, we read approximately 10, a little bit, about 10 chapters on the stories of Abram and Sarah, and those focus on land. Abraham and Sarah get established in the land, and God says, this is the place that I'm going to build a family and a nation for you. We don't hear a lot about Abram and Sarah's son Isaac, just a couple chapters on him, but then we get a big long stretch on Jacob again, and Jacob and his wives and family, and that's actually what the Jacob chapters focus on, is the establishment of the family, that this promise begins to come true there. We got land, we got family. And then we finish with about 10 or 12 chapters on Joseph. And these last, this last big section of the book of Genesis focuses on that or illustrates that third element, how it is that this family just begins to be a blessing to the other families, to the other nations of the world. And Joseph is the first one in whom that really starts to become true. He goes to Egypt, he saves lives there and winds up saving lives and saving from famine, a whole bunch of nations and a whole bunch of families, including, but not limited, to his own that comes to him 
in Egypt. Now, along the way, there were a lot of reasons to doubt that would ever come true, that would ever work. And we could find that in the Abram stories, we could find that in the Jacob stories, but let me just talk about the Joseph stories for a second. I mean, first of all, length of time, right? Do any of you ever, this happens to me, and I think it's a challenge for us in our faith and our Bible reading. Something happens in our lives, and we want to know what's God going to do with that. And when God hasn't redeemed it by tomorrow afternoon, we wonder why God isn't acting, right? And we read these stories, and you read one chapter and you read the next chapter, and it feels like God acts so fast all the time, except the one chapter is 27 years after the first chapter or something like that. Time frame can be long, and we are not patient people, right? Our, our society is not teaching us the value of increased patience. We're not slowing down, right? Sometimes God's plan, sometimes the work that God does in our lives takes a long time to unfold and really daringly challenging for us when we read the stories of how God works in the lives of the ancestors in our family. Sometimes what God is doing in our lives does not come to visible fruition in our lifetimes, but it's like in our children or grandchildren or spiritual grandchildren or the next generation of our community or something where God starts to redeem what happened in the last generation. That is a time frame longer than I usually operate with, but it's an important lesson for us to learn. There's also in Joseph's story the, the toxic family dynamics that he comes from, the things that for many of us, at least subconsciously, feel really disqualifying. You know, I'm not capable of that. I'm not worthy of that. And we, we, we learn these narratives from our family of how we've been opposed and rejected and betrayed and we're not capable of doing those sort of things. Man, that was all over Joseph's story. That would have been reason to doubt, but we see how it turns out anyway. There's the personal failures, and Joseph's story isn't quite as high on personal failures as some of the other ones are in Genesis, but as we've been reading this together this summer, if you have learned anything from the book of Genesis, if we've, if we've seen anything, it's that God does not call the perfect, right? I mean, that's probably because there are no perfect. But as we've been doing this this summer, I feel like half the stories in Genesis are the sort of stuff you're not supposed to talk about in church, <laughs> which has sort of been awkward for a lot of us, I think, during this series. God does not call the perfect probably because there are no perfect people. There are a lot of reasons to doubt this is ever going to happen, and yet this is God's covenant. This is God's promise. And I think the storyline that runs through the book of Genesis is that God is going to make his word come true, that God is going to make his covenant come true. And this story is our story. This, this, this is our ancestry. This ancestry.church is the name of this series. This people is our people, this story is our story, this God is our God, and this calling is still our calling, right? In Jesus Christ, we have become the people of God who come not to be served, but to serve, who come to embody the sacrificial love of Jesus for others. The logic of the Bible story of our family history is that you are not here for you. I am not here for me, and we are not here for us, right? We are not called together to be a people to arrange things according to our preferences or the way that we like them to be or to order our lives and arrange the way our society works for our own advantage. We are here to embody the sacrificial love of Jesus that has been poured out for us by which we have been included in the family of God and to embody that and share that with others. I told you I was gonna ask you to think about two things today. The first one at the beginning, and this second one at the end, probably a little bit more challenging. I'd like to, you to begin by thinking about this question. 
is there anybody in your life this week? Can you think of who it might be that you will encounter this week, an individual, a group, maybe just a relationship context, a situation of some kind, where God is giving you the opportunity to be a blessing to somebody else, where God is giving you the opportunity to make somebody else's life a better place to be, that their life will be better because you were there, the place where you will embody the sacrificial love of Jesus in that context or that relationship. I imagine your minds are beginning to fill with people and relationships and contexts. And take some time to think about that if you want. While you're thinking about that, let me raise the challenge bar on that a little bit to something that I think we all need to be thinking about or at least begin thinking about. The person or the situation or the group that you were thinking of just now, were they a lot like you? Were, were they the same race as you? The same culture, same socioeconomic class, same generation maybe? Were they a lot like you? And, and if that's who God is putting on your heart, praise God, don't ignore that prompting of the Holy Spirit. That's awesome. I'm very happy about that. But let me just raise the challenge level on this a little bit. Because this calling, this verse that we are learning from, this covenant that God has made, this enduring covenant that God has made with his people, said, I will make you a blessing. I'm going to bless your family. That's what God said to Abram. I'll make you great. I'll bless you. But I want through you to bless all the nations. I want to bless all the peoples, all the families of the world through you. So let me just ask you, is it possible that God might, in addition, be whispering to your heart about crossing a gap, about sharing the love of God, about embodying the service of God, about embodying the, the will of God to pull together a people for himself made up of every race and every people and every family and tribe on earth? And might God be working in your heart that way? This has been our call since the very beginning, and I'll be the first to admit that in long stretches of our history, we have forgotten this. In long stretches of our history, we have not been very good at this. It's also important to remember that there have been times in our history when we have been marvelously good at this. Sometimes in the Old Testament history of our people, thousands and thousands of years ago, sometimes much more recently in the last couple millennia. But when we have done well at this, when we have embodied this truth, I think that's when we have been most truly who we are, most faithful to our identity and most faithful to this calling that God gave his people so long ago and continues to give us today. And you know what? If our ancestors in the family of God hadn't done this, hadn't figured this out, hadn't responded to God's call, almost none of us would be here. Because at the beginning of the story, there were no Swedes and there were no Norwegians and there were no Finns or Danes or Germans or Irish. There were no people of Asian descent. There were no African Americans. There were no Native Americans. None of that. It was only the Hebrew descendants of Abraham and Sarah. But that was never God's end game. That was never the long-term plan. The plan was that you would be here. And the plan was that God would continue to do it through you and me right now. I don't exactly know where God is leading you. I don't exactly know what situation God put on your heart. I am very curious to find out what God will do with that when you hear that prompting. And I'm looking forward to seeing it come true. This kind of journey is something God's leading. It's a journey I think that God's always leading his people on. And we got plenty of steps to take. It's always the right day to take the first step. And I'll pray for God to do that work in our hearts and in our body. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Your word that speaks to us, that encourages us, that gives us the good news that you welcome us by your forgiveness. This has been your character. 
Lord, from the very beginning, the character of forgiveness, which you embodied on the cross when Jesus laid down his life for us and for people all around the world. And I pray that you would cause this love to take root in our hearts, that you would convince us that we are your beloved people, and that as your love has poured out to us, that it would pour out through us, that you would give us eyes to see and courage to follow where you lead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.